Good morning, church family. We are beginning a little mini-series here, which I kind of informed you about last week. We're going to, the series, I think, yeah, there it is right there, How to Study the Bible. Um, Perhaps you're wondering, though, why in the world that even matters in the first place. I mean, after all, if we don't understand the why, the how is not going to make much sense, or I'm not necessarily drawn into want to know how. But one of the things that we understand uh, or that we kind of see on a cultural landscape is that when it comes to the, the state of affairs, biblically speaking, when it comes to our biblical knowledge and our biblical understanding, unfortunately, those state of affairs are dismal. People's devotion to scripture and their understanding of God through his word is on drastic decline. We've been reminded of this over and again that, uh, that the, the biblical illiteracy in our country today, but even around the world, but especially in Western culture today, is on rapid decline. And this is not even true outside the church. This is especially true inside the church even inside the church, of people who are professing faith in Jesus Christ, professing faith in the gospel of Jesus, saying that I am a child of the king, unfortunately we see an increasingly uh, uh, less devotion to God's word. There's a decrease in Bible competence. So I, be- I, I felt compelled, actually a number of months ago, I felt compelled by the Lord saying, you know, we really need to come back to the fundamentals. We need to come back to the basics. We need to understand how in the world do I study this divine and eternal word? How do I hear from God effectively? Now I will say this, that that may sound fine and dandy. You may be saying, I, I, I want to know how. But for some of us in here, you could care less how. And the reason why that is, is you want to know why. Why in the world does the Bible matter in the first place? I believe that it's important that we must all become convinced that the Bible is vitally important to our lives before we actually take the time to sit down and read it and understand it. All of us must be persuaded that a consistent time in God's word is of the utmost importance for our lives. Because if we are not absolutely convinced that God's word is essential to you and to me, then we have little reason to take the time to open it and read it and study it. So we're going to understand, first of all, we're going to grapple with why the Bible matters. We're going to understand why it's so essential to our lives each and every single day. I do want to say a kind of a, a note of qualification, however. Um, we, I've, I went to seminary, and we spent months and months and months and months, actually I spent years understanding, in a sense, Bible structure and how to understand the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to make careful observations in the Word of God. And so what I'm getting at is this. We could spend months talking about lots of details, and no doubt you have probably a lot of questions, and I'm not going to answer necessarily every question that you have right now, but I am going to say this. I think we're going to start with some foundational issues, why the Bible matters, how to carefully study it, and we'll talk about that next week. And then the week following will be, 
the posture, the necessary posture so that we might receive what God has for us through his word. If I could uh, just kind of make a quick plug. Um, If you're wondering, what is a good resource what is a good resource for you know, me to kind of flip through, to refer to on a regular basis, to teach my family, or to inform myself even for that, ma- for that matter? Um, if I could just make a careful recommendation here, uh, this book is called A Visual Theology Guide to the Bible. Um, what I love about this, I have, I have lots of different resources that are very similar to this, but this was actually uh, really kind of jumped out uh, even at a conference last week or last year because um, it just, it's easy to understand. It's easy to follow. It really fills in a lot of the voids or uh, places of ignorance in your mind about how we got our Bible, who wrote the Bible, what, how are we supposed to approach the Bible, why study the Bible, which we'll talk about this morning. And so there's, it answers a lot of things, and it helps us understand the genre of literature and how to approach those things. And so if I just can encourage you, this is probably a very valuable resource for you in your home. And I'm going to actually put it in the connect desk after service this morning, and you can flip through it if you want. I just don't, please don't take it. Otherwise, second service won't be able to benefit. Um, but you're like, it's second service. It's okay. It's going <laughs> But really, though, you can, you can flip through it, you can look through it, but I would encourage you, this is a great resource to uh, consider having in your own home library. But this morning, we want to address this question, why does the Bible matter? What relevance does the Bible have in my life? And this morning, I have 13 reasons. Um, you have no idea how much... I labor to try to windle down the basic points. I'm just going to forewarn you this morning. I have 13 reasons, and they are not all the reasons. I have 13 reasons, and we don't even have time enough to go through them all this morning. But we are going to start, and I'll keep a kind of an eye on the clock. And you have your sermon notes. They're already laid out with scripture associated. And you can, uh, I, I'm just going to say up front that this is for, I'm going to kind of fire hose you a little bit, and then um, you're going to reflect on it later. And you're going to, in your conversations, in your life groups, and your whatever it is, I'm going to encourage you to kind of take these notes and kind of mull over them a little more deeply, reflect on them a little more intensely. So 13 reasons, here we go. The first reason why the Bible matters is because it is how we know God. The reason why the Bible matters is it is the predominant way, it is really the, 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 the foundational way in which you and I know God. You see, people all over the world have some idea about God, or some people have, or worship some sort of version of their God, and even in Western culture, there, is, there are so many ideas about who God is and, and why he matters and how he relates to the human race, but the only way in which you can know who God is, the only way in which you can know how God desires to be related to, relatable, the only way in which you can understand more fully uh, what God's plan is for this, his world and his creation is by how God discloses himself through his word. In other words, it's important that we think rightly about God. But the way in which you and I are able to think rightly about God is only possible by how he has revealed himself 
through what we refer to as the Bible. So you can have, again, some idea about God. You can wish God was a certain way, but it is imperative that you and I understand God as he reveals himself, as he discloses himself through his eternal and inspired word. It also means this, that when you open your Bible, when you open it up, or you turn it on in this case, I know, but sometimes there's something, I don't know, just more familiar about an actual book in hand. When you open your Bible or turn on your Bible, you must come to, come to uh, this understanding that God is actually speaking to you. God is actually speaking when you read the words of God. So when we open his, the word, when we, when we turn on the word, we must come with this expectation or anticipation that God has something to say to us, that he is going to speak to us. So the Bible matters first and foremost because this is how we know God. Secondly, however, the Bible matters because it is how we know the will of God. Not just kind of know who he is, but this is how we come to understand his will, specifically his will for us. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. You and I are created in the image of God. We are created by God and we are created in his image. And therefore, because we are created in his image with a specific design, that specific design infers a specific purpose. Design equates to purpose. You and I are created with a specific purpose and we cannot experience the abundant life. We cannot experience the joy that God promises until we live a life that is consistent with our purpose. So perhaps the question is, what is God's will for us? What is his purpose that is consistent with our created design? Once again, this could be a multi-month series, but let me just throw off a few examples. First of all, we understand that God's will for you, God's will for me, is that we would love. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, for example. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. One purpose that God has for you is that you would be a person who loves as God loves. We love because, John says, he first loved us. Secondly, we also see that God's will for us is to be sanctified It's the the process of sanctification. I know that's a fancy theological term, but sanctification or to be sanctified literally means to be remade. It is a process of transformation. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, this is the will of God. Pretty clear. here, Here we go. What is the will of God? This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Your, re, your, being, your remadeness, your holiness, your transformation. This is why Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, sanctify them, praying to his Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
What Jesus is acknowledging in that prayer is this, that the way in which you and I are uh, uh, in kind of going through the process of sanctification or becoming more like Christ, more consistent with our design and purpose is through the word of God. God has every intention, we've talked about this before, God has every intention of remaking you. I know God says, I know God pursued you right where you're at. I know Jesus loved you right where you're at. And let me just inform you, based on what Scripture teaches, he has every intention of remaking you. He has every intention of transforming you. In fact, he loves you so much that he doesn't leave you as you are. But he has every purpose to remake you into someone who reflects his glory more boldly and proudly. You know, if we could just wrap our minds around that concept in and of itself, that God's number one goal in my life right now is to be sanctified or become holy, we would do ourselves a great service. I think we would do ourselves a great benefit because we would top, maybe stop kicking and screaming and resisting God's ways and instead realize that everything that I experience in this life, apart from my own sinful actions, is really God sanctifying me. He's making me holy. He's using it for the glory of his name. I always appreciate what Gary Thomas says in his book, Sacred Marriage. He says, if people going into marriage would just understand this one concept, it would radically transform their marriage. What is that concept? God's design of marriage is not to make you happy, but to make you holy. Marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. We also see that God's will for us is to be a thankful people. Paul says else later in his letter to the Thessalonian believers, he says, give thanks in some circumstances, the ones that you like, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. No, he says, give thanks in all circumstances, good and especially those are difficult. I'll be honest, that's not always my default reaction. When everything seems to be hitting the fan, it's not like, thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. But he says, that's my will for you. That you would be thankful no matter what because you know a God. You know God. You know he's involved. You know he loves you. You know he's using everything for the glory of his name. His will for us that we would be thankful. His will for us is that we would be humble. Listen to what James says in James chapter 4, verse 6. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore... A few verses later, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I'll be honest, church family, as I, as I kind of reflected on that purpose in and of itself, it kind of put me back in my seat once again necessarily this week. As I thought about that and even my own pride and my own heart and how every single day I struggle with thinking about me too much, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It reminded me of the words of Isaiah chapter 66, God speaking here. He says, this is the one I look on with favor. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So if we were to ask the question, so who, who is in God's good graces in a sense? Who is the one in which God looks down on with favor? 
He says it right here. The one who is humble. The one who is contrite. That means to be genuinely repentive of your sin. And those who tremble have a, a, a healthy fear of his word. That's who God smiles upon. That's the person in which God finds favor in. Another one, just for the sake of putting it, because I put it on my list. God's will for us is that we would suffer. Whoa, that's not the gospel I remember hearing. But yeah, that's God's will. According to scripture, all throughout, you can't deny it. God's will for us is that we would suffer. Jesus says this in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So on one hand, at least especially in regards to our faith, if you are faithful to your professed faith, you will experience persecution. You will experience hostility for your stance for truth. Most people in the world, they know this is just what it means to be a Christian. This is just what it means to be a Christian. We were talking about this this past week. We just finished a book um, by Francis Chan called Letters to the Church, kind of discussed it as pastors, and Francis Chan was interviewing uh, somebody in India, or was it Iraq, I think, Iran or Iraq, somewhere in there, somewhere hostile, and uh, he says, you know, the difference between, the pastor basically just made this remark, he said, the difference is, is you talk about sanctification as a process, but we talk it about as a prerequisite. In other words, we talk about we're kind of gl- slowly going through, God is gradually and tenderly remaking us, eventually I come to the point in which I totally surrender and totally give my life, and on one hand that is technically true, but on the other hand they say, no, you pretty much, when you sign on to membership at our church, you are saying, I'm already ready to die. I've already completely and totally surrendered my life. That's what it means to be a Christian in a context of hostility towards the gospel. So yes, it is God's will that you would suffer. And it's not just for persecution for your faith, but it's also all kinds of suffering. That's why we have this passage in James 1 that says, count it all joy. Once again, thankful people, count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, all kinds of trials, because we know that ultimately it has this full effect and it makes us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Bottom line, brothers and sisters, it's this. The Bible matters because it shows you the will of God. In other words, you don't have to go, why is this happening to me? The real question is, you ask, Lord, what are you doing in this? It's not, oh, poor me, woe is me. It's, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to grow me? Lord, may I have your perspective on what you are doing knowing full well that you are in total and absolute control. Our third reason of why the Bible matters is that it leads to saving faith. We see in Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. In fact, we just read here in 2 Timothy, the verse 15. Thank you, Brother Yancey, for reading uh, the previous verses. But in verse 15 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says this, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The fact is, 
The Bible matters because it tells you what you need to hear. It tells you that you're a sinner. We live in a culture today in which, like, no, I'm a good person that sometimes does bad things. And the Bible says, no, you're a bad person who does bad things. A bad tree bears, bears bad fruit. A bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. The Bible says everyone is guilty and desperately wicked. That's not the mantra, that's not the message being advocated in our culture today, but the Bible says otherwise. The Bible tells us not only that we are sinful, but that we are deserving of eternal punishment, but it also says we have this glorious Savior that came to save us from ourself. We were dead in our sins, and we talked about this. You know what dead people do? Nothing. They're dead. They can't do anything. They are completely and utterly helpless, and yet God in his love and in his grace and in his mercy reaches down and literally awakens our hearts, literally gives us life-saving breath, takes the blinders from our eyes, whereas once, as Paul would say, what was foolishness is now life-giving truth. So the word of God leads us to saving faith. It, it exposes who we really are. And this brings us to our fourth reason. The Bible matters because it makes us godly. The Bible matters because it makes us godly. The Bible has the ability to expose the innermost parts of our heart. I love what, the, you know this verse pretty well probably. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive. Whoa. The word of God is alive and powerful, and it is sharper than it, the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Wow. So when we open the word of God, it tells us who we really are, not who we might think we are. It tells us what's actually in our hearts, even though we might assume or conclude that we're pretty good. The Bible reminds us that the only good we have is because of Jesus Christ. And apart from him, I am not good at all. We see the Bible trains us in righteousness as was already read here, it's, it's all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible transforms us. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The emphasis of the context is through the word of God. So the Bible matters because it makes us holy. But fifthly, the Bible matters because it helps us bear fruit for the kingdom of God. The Bible matters because it helps us bear fruit for the kingdom of God. I won't read the passage here, but in Matthew chapter 13, we see that there's the parable of the sower, right? And you can go and reflect on it later. Just read the whole first half of the chapter, basically, all the way through verse 23. The parable of the sower, Jesus is kind of speaking to crowds of people, but then they don't really get the parable, as is often the case. And then even the disciples don't quite get what Jesus is getting at, and so as well, it's not for them to fully understand, but I will explain it to you. And he goes on to explain the parable of the sower. And what we understand in the parable of the sower is this, the seed represents the word of God, and the soil in which the seed lands represents our hearts. 
And the seed lands on all kinds of different soils. We have some soil that lands on the seeds that land on the path. We have some seeds that land on uh, rocky ground. We have seeds that land on uh, thorns. And we also have seeds that land on fruitful ground. We see the seed that, that lands on the path is anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. They are like someone who hears the word, but the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. We see that the seed that lands on rocky ground is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it. They love it. They think it's the greatest thing ever, and yet it takes no root and endures for a little while, and then tribulation and persecution arise, and it falls away. We see the seed that lands on thorns is like who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. And then there's the seed that lands on good soil. This is the one who not only hears the word, and as we talked about last week, does it. This is the one who hears the word and obeys, follows through, acts on what they hear, and in turn they yield a bountiful harvest, some yielding a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. It sort of kind of begs the question for us this morning, what kind of soil is the word of God landing on in your life? When you read the word of God, when you hear the word of God, how is it being received? As Jesus says, you cannot bear fruit apart from hearing the word of God and acting on what he says in his word. As Jesus says in John fifteen five, apart from me, you can do nothing. The sixth reason why the Bible matters it's because this is how we resist Satan and temptation. The reason why the Bible matters is because this is how we resist Satan and temptation. The fact is, and I don't think I have to remind you of this, but perhaps I still do, you and I live in a reality today in which we have a ruthless enemy. It's amazing how oftentimes, even in my own life, I forget that The world in which I live, the world in which I inhabit, yes, has literal form and matter and everything else, but it's actually, there's a spiritual realm. And there's, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, Paul says in Ephesians 6. In other words, we need to see life and interpret life and, and our proper perspective on life is from a godly lens, from a, a God-informed lens. And so, for example, we see in John 8, Jesus says this to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. By the way, this is not a a recommended comeback. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. What kind of father is he? He He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And he, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Church family, one of the greatest things you can uh, do for yourself is to take every thought captive. 
taking every thought captive and asking this question, is this thought in my mind right now really of God? Or is it really just my own insecurities, my weak flesh? Or in conjunction with that, is this the evil one filling my mind with all kinds of thoughts and ideas and seeking to cause a wedge in many of my relationships? In other words, how do I know this thought is actually real? How do I know it's actually true? I mean, it's real because I'm thinking it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. As Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. As Peter warns in 1 Peter 5, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But the way you and I resist the way in which you and I can overcome temptation and the, the lies that oftentimes fill our mind are, is, well, there's a lot of things, but two, two reasons I'm going to give you this morning. One is we resist him by remaining firm in our faith. This is what Peter says. Yes, we have a, an enemy. We have a, a, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and he says, resist him. How? I've tried and I keep failing. How do I resist him? He says, resist him firm in your faith. How do I remain firm in my faith? I need to continue to remain in the presence of God so that my faith is steadfast, so that I can endure faithfully. We see that the author of Hebrews says this, the word of God is like an anchor to our soul. And when the storms are tossing and turning and everything is getting thrown all over the place, the anchor holds steady. So the way you and I remain firm in our faith is by a devotion to God and his eternal word. Secondly, however, we also see that we confront lies with truth. We we remain firm in our faith through the word and therefore because of that we are able to confront lies with truth, the truth from God's word. You you recall in Matthew chapter 4 a long time ago when we preached in that part, Remember, Jesus, just before, just on the eve of his ministry, he went out to the wilderness for 40 days. He's fasted 40 days. Just fathom that for a moment. And then he's also tempted by the devil three different times. We won't go into all the exhaustive details there, but listen to how Jesus responds to this temptation. He doesn't, he doesn't claim his own authority because he's Jesus Christ and don't mess with me. No, he says he uses the word of God to confront the lies of Satan, even the twisted interpretation of God's word from Satan. So it's imperative that you and I know God's word because if we don't know what he has says, when, the, when, not if, but when those lies are implanted in your mind, the only hope you have is to confront those lies with truth. Seventh reason, the Bible matters because our prayers depend on it. Apparently that's the turn in your page. The Bible matters because our prayers depend on it. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 17. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This resonates similarly with what David says in Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 1 John 5. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything. 
that pleases him. And since we, since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. The point that, that we're making here is this, that because we know God's will through his revelation to us, it enables us to pray in agreement to God's will. The reason why Jesus makes this audacious, kind of, the audacity to kind of say such claims, like if you ask it, I'll do it. We're like, well, that's kind of easy. It's like I got my own personal genie here, right? I ask it, I want it, I get it. That sounds great. Well, not necessarily. God says, I will grant you whatever you ask so long as this one uh, detail is true of you, that you love me more than anything in the world. That you love my word more than anything in the world. That you love, therefore you love my purposes more than anything in the world. And if you love me with your holistically, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, yeah, ask whatever you want. Because the person who asks God with that foundation would never want to ask anything contrary to God and his will. And doesn't mean that we always know God's will. Yes, he's revealed his will generally. He's also revealed his will specifically. But as, as far as what that looks like or how that translates to your life right now, today, and maybe your current circumstances, how do I know the will of God? Well, I find great rest in what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is that weakness? We don't know what God wants us to pray. We don't know the will of God But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father knows all our hearts and knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. The Bible matters because our prayer life depends on it. So that we can pray as we ought. Eighth reason, we're actually getting through this pretty well. Eighth reason why the Bible matters is it, it is because our, it is our source of lasting joy. The Bible matters because it is our source of lasting joy. Listen to what David says in Psalm chapter 119. He says in verse 97, for example, Oh, how I love your instruction. I think about them all day long. Or a few verses later in, in verses 111, Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. Have you ever noticed that you always think about the things that you love? You always think about those things that you love. Now this is where we have to kind of be honest with our own hearts because we can say, we can profess verbally very easily, I love God, I love his church, I love all these things, I love, you know. But the real question is, what do you think about often? Because the things you think about regularly or often indicate where your heart is really at, what you actually love. It it exposes the affections of your heart. According to David, he says, I love the word of God. I love God's law. I love his commands. Why would David, out of all the potential things to love in life, love God's law so much? Because if you read Psalm 119, which I would encourage you to do, you realize there are a plethora of benefits 
numerous benefits. For example, verse 9, the word of God keeps us pure. Verse 11, it keeps us from sin. Verse 28, it, keeps, it gives us strength. Verse 37, it gives us life. Verse 39, his rules are good. Verse 43, it gives us hope. 49 and 50, it gives us hope and comfort in our affliction. Verses 92 and 93, God's word is his delight in life. Psalm 119, 104, it gives us understanding. 105, it gives, it's a guide for our lives. Verse 130, it gives us wisdom. Verse 151 and 152, its commandments are true and eternal. Verse 165, it gives us peace. Whew. I just selected a few of them. There's a lot in there. May I encourage you, maybe, the, maybe what you do in response to our sermon here this morning is you just read through Psalm 119 and go on, why does God matter? Why does God's word matter for my life? Just read through and underline every benefit, everything God's word does for you. The ninth reason why the Bible matters is because blessing and prosperity are the result of consistent meditation on God's word. Now please understand me when I say blessing and prosperity. Many people can take that and run with it from a very subjective, self-serving motivation. That's not what I'm here to say. But we do see that Scripture explicitly talks about that we are blessed and that our ways are prosperous when we are devoted to God and His Word. For example, Psalm chapter 1, the very first chapter in all the Psalms, David says this right from the gate. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's not the blessed man. No, the blessed man is one who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or we see how Josh, Joshua is commissioned by God himself when he's getting ready to take the, the children of Israel into the promised land. They've been wandering for 40 years because of their own rebellion. Joshua wasn't rebellious, but he was still affected by the sin of his own people. And so now finally, finally, even Caleb, Caleb is 80 years old, he's finally entering into the land that was promised to them, and God says this, hey, you know what, there's probably a lot of questions on your mind, here's one thing you need to kind of understand crystal clear. He says, Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that, here's the purpose, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Joshua, in the midst of all the questions you have, maybe the fears and insecurities you have leading this huge number of people into the promised land, knowing many obstacles in front of you, make sure this is true of your life. Make sure that the word of God is foundational to your life. Then you will have success. Then your way will be prosperous. Tenth reason. I'm going to fly through a couple of these because the thirteenth reason I want to spend some time on. The Bible matters because it is the only standard of truth that does not change. You know, we live in a world of what now? Fake news, right? We live in a society in which there's millions of opinions and philosophies that contradict to one another all the time. We're inundated by many people's expressed opinions. You need to understand things from my perspective. 
We live in a world in which the standard of right and wrong continually changes over time. But guess what, brothers and sisters? God's word has never changed. Right and wrong has never changed. His word is eternal. It will always be true. So regardless of what's happening on the horizontal landscape, we can find great rest in the fact that God, his word, are unchangeable. They're eternal, from eternity past to eternity present, as Jesus says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. The 11th reason here why the Bible matters is because we cannot live without it. Real quickly, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, listen to what Moses says or charges to the people of Israel. He says, God humbled you and let you hunger and, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God was teaching his own people, hey, you are fully dependent upon me. It's not on your ability to provide for yourself. It's on my ability to provide for you. This doesn't excuse your irresponsibility, but it means that our, our dependence on God is foundational as believers in Jesus Christ. The Bible matters because we cannot live without it. Twelfthly, the Bible matters because it gives us hope. Romans 15, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You know, when I discover or am able to find out that others are going through similar things or have gone through similar things and I see the fruit as a result, it encourages me to endure as well. In fact, if you look at the, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is all this hallmark of faith. And then t- chapter 12 transitions from this hallmark of faith. All these people who walked with God in faith but never got to experience the culmination of God's redemptive purposes. But Hebrews says this in, in chapter 12. He says, having, therefore, having this great cloud of witnesses, all these people that have endured faithfully, because of that, we have great hope. Therefore, lay aside what every sin and everything, every weight that clings so closely to us. Many of others have done it before. Many have gone before us and done the same thing. Guess what, brothers and sisters? Whatever you're going through in life right now, many brothers and sisters have gone through the exact same thing. And they've done so faithfully. And they've glorified God in the process. And that means... Because the Spirit of God is in you, so can you. Not by your power, not by your strength, but by his strength in you. Thirteenth and finally, I can't believe I actually made it through these. The Bible matters because the spiritual health of your adult kids depend on it. The Bible matters because the spiritual health of your adult kids depend on it. As I was compiling lots of different articles and I decided to kind of not mention many, some will kind of be sprinkled in the next couple of weeks. But Lifeway Research kind of did a study in which they surveyed 2,000 Protestant or non-denominational churchgoers 
And according to the kind of the who they were interviewing, at least everybody they interviewed, every church unit they interviewed, uh, they all attended services at least once a month, which, by the way, is considered a regular attender. They all now have adult children, and the purpose was to discover which parenting practices actually paid off. Kind of a good question to ask, like, okay, so you had your children, you've done, kind of been there, done that, now you're empty nesters, and we kind of take a survey not only of what you did, but we also survey kind of how your kids are doing, spiritually speaking, and they find out, so were there certain things that kind of rose to the surface, certain practices that seemed to pay off in the long run? And they see they, they, they had eight different uh, uh, points of criteria. I think I included those in your notes. Spiritual health factors that were surveyed. First of all, they identify as a Christian, kind of important. Uh, they share his or her faith with unbelievers. They are involved in a church. They read the Bible regularly. They serve in a church. They teach others at a church. They serve in the community, and they support local and foreign missions. Here's the results of that study. Out of 3,472 adult children surveyed, 85% identified as Christian, according to the parents. So on one hand, we're kind of like, that's actually pretty good. 85% identifying as Christians. Unfortunately, that's probably the only good news. Because when the adult kids were surveyed directly, and as they started probing a little more deeply, we see that only 3% identified with all eight factors. Out of almost 3,500 adult kids, only 3% identified with not just identifying as a Christian, but serving in Christ's church in some way, reading the Bible regularly, supporting local and foreign missions. Two-thirds identified with two factors or less. And half identified with only one or none of the factors surveyed. Meaning, 11% didn't even identify as Christian and 39% identified as Christian but none of the other spiritual practices. What that means is that many, there are many professing Christians who don't practice what they profess. And as we discussed last week, if you are a professing Christian who does not live as a Christian, it's probably because you are not a Christian. I was just reading, watching a little YouTube thing last night with David Platt and Francis Chan, and they said this very bluntly, don't be deceived, disciples make disciples. And they said, well, why why don't disciples make disciples? And they just said very clearly, because they're probably not disciples. They've grown up in the church. They talk the talk in some cases. They might even be busybodies in the church. Or at least they think it's, I can be a Christian and that's pretty much the extent of my commitment. But as we understand what God says about what it means to be a Christian. Let me just say this in the most practical ways. When you open your Bible from cover to cover, you will never see words like asking Jesus into your heart. You will never see words like I prayed a prayer. 
That has never been the case of salvation in Scripture. And so we must be cautious, church family. We must be careful how much we affirm people's salvation when in fact they may not be saved. George Whitfield said this after great revivals, thousands would respond. They said, isn't this so great that so many people are responding? He said, I guess we'll see in about six months to a year. Remember Matthew chapter 13, the word of God lands on many hearers. Some accept it pretty readily in the beginning, but eventually the cares of this world gets choke, chokes it out. Persecution and hostility makes them run. And what we call a profession of faith actually turns out to just to be a short season of curiosity. The good news is that those who did were kind of referred to as healthy adult children, healthy spiritually adult children, we see that there were some practices that were consistent in all those families. So those who are not only that identify with most of the factors, we see that the parenting practices were consistent. They were regular times of prayer. They regularly served in a church. They even said they primarily listened to Christian music. They participated in a church mission trip while growing up, but the number one factor by a long shot, I mean, this isn't even a close second. This is like number one, and everything else was kind of supplementary to this. The number one factor that contributed to the spiritual health of adult children was regular Bible reading as kids. As Jenna McGruger, who is the director of Lifeway Kids, says in the author of the book that she wrote and where this um, where the study is found, she says the key takeaway from the study is a simple yet profound finding that God's word truly is what changes lives. In other words, we, and we might not even know that, but the question, is it in fact true of your family? Is it true of your life? They went on to say kind of in a, as another qualification, they said, don't underestimate, parents, the power of training your kids by example. Because what was also consistent in the homes where kids were reading the Bible at young ages was that parents were likewise doing the same thing. It kind of went hand in hand. It reminds me of what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter six. First, you must love the Lord your God in, with every aspect of your being so that you can encourage your kids to do the same. The point is, Lifeway Research, the, the point of the survey is this, and I believe why it's applicable for us this morning is this. There is a direct correlation between regular Bible reading as young people and one's spiritual health as an adult. That's just what the data is saying. I think sometimes, however, I think sometimes we might even say, yeah, I believe that, Aaron. Much like I believe healthy food will give me a better quality of life. But the question is, are you gonna make the change? The question is, are you gonna begin to eat those things that are essential for your good? Or are we going to begin to feed regularly on God's word so that our lives might be transformed for his glory? 
Can I just encourage you this way, brothers and sisters? If this is not true of your life, if you are not in the practice of of regular reading and studying and feeding on God's word, can I just encourage you to put God to the test? I know. You're not supposed to put God to the test, right? Jesus said that in Matthew 4. But in this case, I think it's okay. Put God to the test. Feed on his word every single day this week and see what happens. Just take 10 minutes. Undistracted, don't look at your phone. In fact, don't use your phone. If you want undistracted time, pull out your Bible. There's too many other things in your phone, automated. Pull out your Bible, read it, and of course, in the next couple weeks, we'll identify how to do that even more effectively. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You're a merciful God, and you're a patient God. And Lord, we are so very grateful for your word and even though we know the right thing to do oftentimes and yet fail to do it, Lord, you are so patient and you are so ready to forgive. We know who you are and we, and we, and we grow to love you because of how you reveal yourself to us through your word. I pray that, Lord, we would be a church not just dependent upon the pastor to to give us something for the week, but that we'd be a church who learns to feed regularly, not just content with spiritual milk, but feeding on the meat of your word. That we have this kind of voracious appetite to hear from you, to know you, to know your will more fully, to live a life that ultimately brings glory to your name. Father, we need your spirit to help us in that process. But I pray that we as a church can encourage one another with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.